The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, I hope you had a great Christmas. Uh, we sure did. Uh, my name is Dave Foster, in case this is like one of your first times here, and I'm pastor of Family Ministries. Uh, we had a great Christmas at our home. Uh, a lot of you know I have three daughters, and we're in that new phase of life. I, I, I just think of back to when the girls were young, and I was the only guy in the house. And so anytime something needed to be moved or lifted or something you know, needed attention somewhere, a spider, spider dad, spider, you know, come and kill the spider. Uh, I was always the guy on call. Uh, any bodily noises made, all fingers were pointing you know, right here. So I had no help whatsoever. But now I'm in that phase of life where, you know, we sit down at the, at the table on Christmas and I, I've got all these son-in-laws and, and it's awesome. You know, uh, it's just like I, I've joined a fraternity or something. It's just, it's incredible. Uh, I, I find myself, you know, just kind of sitting in my recliner as they start moving things and lifting things. Here, let us do that for you, you know. Yeah, go ahead. That's great. Thank you very much. You know, there's probably a spider upstairs. Better go get it, you know. <laughs> and of course, the bodily noise department is not limited to me anymore. And I love that. You know, it's great. And I'm still young enough that uh, I get to sit at the head of the table and the food is kind of passed by me first. You know, I walk in the living room and they give up my recliner. But like, you know, an old lion losing its teeth, I know they're just waiting for the moment, you know. And they will ascend to the throne, so to speak. But wait, we had a great time. Uh, with the family all together, and I hope you did too. It's a new year is approaching us, and um, I entitled uh, what I'm going to talk on this morning, Reasons for Hope. Uh, and the reason I, I was thinking about this as we approach this new year is that if, if we have our eyes open, uh, if you've been watching the news, if you are, uh, have your ear to the ground, so to speak, you're aware of the fact that there are some storm clouds uh, on the horizon as far as Christianity is concerned. Uh, there seems to be a lot of things uh, going on that are kind of threatening to how we see life and how we believe and so forth. Uh, I remember as a boy uh, loving to go into my grandparents' house up in Eagle Grove, Iowa, in Wright County. Uh, we would do this, I don't know, 10, 15 times a year, I think, uh, leaving Omaha, making that four-hour drive up there to see them. And if you're old enough to remember the days before air conditioning, I can remember being in their home and, you know, on uh, late spring days and uh, it was just hot and humid. And uh, we would sit on their porch at night, uh, a screened in porch, but sit out there. They had chairs and couches. And uh, I loved it because while we were trying to get cool, just praying that a breeze would come and tickle the sweat off your face. Uh, we got to stay up late, and it was awesome. But not all the nights were awesome. There were nights in which uh, it was reported on the radio that my grandfather would listen to that storms were coming, possibly tornadoes. And being an old farmer, uh, that really concerned him uh, to the extent that you know he became a different man. Uh, usually, my grandfather was full of uh, humor. He loved to tell uh, jokes. He loved to pull practical jokes. Uh, he was an old Frenchman, and he loved to tell these 10 to 20 minute long uh, stories, and then we all knew this was coming, but when he would get to the, the conclusion, the punchline, he would uh, look slyly at us, and then he would recite it in French, and then he would just laugh and laugh because, you know, as grandkids, we're all like, what did he just say? I have no idea. And my grandma, who is Irish, 
she had heard these stories so many times and she knew what it was supposed to be said and she'd be like, Raymond, now Raymond, you tell these kids what exactly that means in English, you know? And so he would eventually get to it. But when a storm was coming, when uh, there was a threat of bad weather, uh, he became a totally different guy. Uh, if we had been in bed upstairs, uh, he would make us get up and get our shoes and, and you know, we had to be ready to run into that storm cellar at any moment because uh, some horrible weather could be coming. Um, my encouragement to you this morning is to let's not be that way. Uh, there may be some storms approaching. In fact, there are. But I don't think that we want to encourage fear. Fear has a way of uh, transforming uh, us and actually being inherited by those around us. Uh, my uncles, my uh, grandfather had uh, four sons, and they're all kind of that way. They got very nervous around storms. When my wife and I were in seminary in Dallas, Texas, my Uncle Dick came down to visit, and he just greatly uh, wanted to bless us, so he took us out one night for pizza, and we had just ordered two huge pizzas uh, from a Godfather's. And we had sat down at the table, and I went over and got them and brought the pizzas, and my uncle's back was to the windows. And just as we were getting ready to eat, my wife, who should have known better, said, my, aren't those interesting clouds? And in a flash, my uncle's turned around, you know, like, what? And he saw those clouds, and without any help, we're gone. You know, everybody, he's just up, he's out the door, we're all following. We get into his Cadillac, we head back, you know. We had a rush to get back to our second floor apartment. You know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just, uh, fear does that to you. And it wasn't well thought out, the response, and it usually wasn't. Um, yeah, we do have some things to fear. I mean, if we're listening, we hear things in our, in our news that kind of concern us, and, and well, they should. I'm going to advocate this morning sort of a Romans 12 uh, position for us in that Paul writes in the first verse that he appeals to us uh, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living, uh, holy, and acceptable uh, sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to these fears, to this world, but be transformed uh, by the renewal of your mind. We look around in our society today and we see things. Uh, supposedly some 4,000 churches in America close every year. In fact, if we compare to like 1953, there are one-third less churches in America today than there were then. And yet our population has boomed since then. Uh, we're told that our young people are growing up in the church, professing Christ, but as soon as they get to the age where they can make their own decisions, they're electing to move away. In fact, uh, there are some 3,500 people every day, it is reported, that abandon their Christian beliefs. More frightening to me is the fact that despite political promises to the contrary and the revelation of some of those horrific videos we watched this year of, of what is happening in the abortion industry, still abortion continues to be protected by U.S. laws. More frightening is the fact that 50% of Americans identify as Christians, and yet we see almost no impact on our society. Uh, by those 50%. In fact, we sometimes feel like there's maybe only 0.05% of us who actually believe in Christ. Not true. Christians are learning to live with globalization. Well, we're learning to not just be overrun by the three S's, uh, speed, scale, and simultaneity. We, we, we have to embrace that and learn how to use it. And yet at the same time, those forces in our culture that are most responsible for globalization, capitalism, science, and technology, 
have decided that they are self-justifying, self-sustaining. Since World War II, Western culture seems to have been trying to cut the umbilical cord from the Judeo-Christian mother so that they may explore what it means to be truly free and uh, redefine itself. And in that midst of all of this, it sometimes feels that the Christian, the church, is an island in a sea that is threatening to overwhelm it. We've done well in some areas in these new challenges. We've done well in our competition with relativism, with the new atheists, but because they are overt, they're explicit, they're easy to define. Maybe we haven't done so well with other more subtler trends in our society, like our obsession with public opinion, with numbers, with quantity and metrics. It seems that even the church is more concerned at times with public opinion than with divine authority. And when this happens, when the world perceives that we have lost the salt that flavors us, when we've become more like the world than the world like us, people start leveling criticisms at us, such as the church is more about quantity than quality. The church is more about externals than they are about inner realities. Perhaps we appear to be more about performance than relationship. We're so shallow and we lack depth. We concern more about evangelism and the number of conversions that we can notch rather than true discipleship and a growth in character that should follow from an evangelistic movement. Sometimes people see us as championing a bandwagon rather than getting deep into the Bible. We're more about popularity and less about principle. Sometimes we're more sensitive to horizontal pressures than we are to the vertical authority that is so supposed to animate us. So this morning, my encouragement to us is that we do have reason to hope, no matter what we see happening around us. We do have faith in our Lord and his church. For all the technology advances in science, in medicine, in transportation, in connectedness, uh, we still worship a nonconformist, socially, culturally transforming Lord. Jesus is so amazing. Sometimes it makes it feel like, well, really, in the light of all these pressures, how in the world do we compete in this society of ideas? How do we keep our banner for Christ raised so that others not only see it, but are attracted to it? Some might say, well, we're really underdogs. Christianity is the underdog in Western civilization, but I would contend today that it's always been that way. Jesus has never been the one that people have said is overwhelming in his presence. I love the little writing, One Solitary Life, <coughs> which says about Jesus, he never wrote a book, he never held office, he didn't have a family or own a home, he didn't go to college, uh, he never really visited big cities, and he never traveled more than about 200 miles from the place where he was born. This rural bumpkin, bucolic Galilean, he just was a man. And yet, I don't think anybody in the Roman Empire uh, was looking around, looking to that corner of the world, suspecting that the greatest threat to their dominance was going to be this little man. This guy that just taught a few people who seemed to be so focused on this little renegade nation of Israel. And yet, in 300 years, he would completely conquer them. He would completely transform their society. Uh, yeah, we're the underdog, no, no doubt, but that doesn't rob us of our hope. From such humble beginnings, the world has been changed forever. 
On a side note, I would say this, that as I read and listen to people and they say, well, yeah, there are so many parallels between what we're facing today and what the church of the first century faced, I would say yes, to a point. There's agreement on that. But I would add this caveat, that when Christianity first broke on the world, uh, after the day of Pentecost, when the apostles were animated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they took that message to Asia, and they took it to the West, and they took it to North Africa, and they took it into the known world, they were so successful and so powerful, and a lot of that was because it was a brand new radical message that people had never heard before. The idea that a man was resurrected from the dead, that he died for our sins, was just something they had not encountered before. <coughs> and yet, today, we're not in the same position. In Western culture, at least, people kind of have that been there, done that attitude about Christianity. Uh, we've tried that. It does not measure up to what we need for the modern day challenges, some think. In fact, we find ourselves in sort of an ABC moment. Uh, anything but Christ. Uh, people will rush to embrace new religions, new spiritual movements. Uh, people will pay all that they have. They will work themselves to death. They will invest themselves in all totality for something, but not for Christ. Uh, we've been there. We've done that. So we do have unique challenges today. Let's put it this way. Uh, Christopher Dawson says as a professional historian, that as far as historians are concerned, Christ's life was not only unimportant, but it was actually invisible. And yet he transformed the world. And as time has progressed, I would, I would contend this, that in first 1500 years in our culture, in our society, if we can say that with much unity, uh, it was almost impossible not to believe in God, to, believe, to be theists. But once modernity hit, once we had the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and so far as time marched on, people began to believe that they had choices. I can believe in God or I may not. Uh, science may become my new God. Technology can be my new God. This world religion can be my new God. Uh, and people may have abandoned that. But it was always a choice. But I would argue that today, in the direction that we're heading, it seems that we're just going 180 from what I was saying earlier. That people today are almost feeling it's impossible to believe in God. Uh, how is it that we live in a society where Christianity has become like a cup of weak coffee, too bitter to swallow, too lukewarm to matter, as Carl Truman says. I believe the challenge today is to learn to navigate this storm, not to circle the wagons, not to think, oh, well, this is the end, but to more than ever to be re-energized. As we face this year, 2016, not only do we have a reason of hope, but we have a charge to move to make the church what it should be, and in so doing, transform our society, as Romans 12 says. Well, how did we get into this position? What has happened of note lately that has weakened our message, that has weakened the power that we have to transform? And I would say that there's been a definite de-evolution of Western Christianity. We've, we've embraced, first of all, that the feelings are more important than doctrine. Christianity, if nothing else, is a dogmatic assertion. We believe in absolute truth. We believe that the historical premises, that Jesus Christ was a real man. He walked, he talked, he breathed, he, he shared a message that people were actually transformed in their life, that his society was never the same after he was here. And yet today, so many times when I talk to people, we've reduced Christianity, even within the church, to a point of saying, well, I feel, I believe, 
but we don't say this is what is true. I, I was talking to a science teacher not too long ago, and the science teacher debating with me a little bit of the merits of Christianity, yet still trying to be somewhat friendly and giving his take on how one should interact with the Bible and with Jesus said, well, personally, I believe, and I said, let me stop you there. I really don't care what you believe. I'm sorry if that sounds offensive, but I don't. And I don't care if you believe what I believe. You see, I have an objective faith. There is something that I stand on that is more than what you believe and what I believe. And sometimes in the spirit of just getting along with others, we personalize our beliefs, our theology, so that people begin to think it's just, it dwells within us. It's not that we represent something greater. It's just that we are walking and talking belief systems, but that we have no connectiveness with anything else. Secondly, there's been a true loss of understanding of history within the Christian church. And if you know me, you're going to say, oh, yeah, Dave's hitting that drum again. He loves history. Well, it's because history supports us. Let's put it this way. To reject history, the history of Scripture, is to reject doctrine. You cannot have one without the other. So many people would like to say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in, uh, you know, what he says and so forth. But I'm not sure that all that other stuff actually happened, that it's historical. But think about it. Christ died is a historical statement. Christ died for our sins is the theological addendum to that history. It's what informs us. It's what it fills us and gives life and breath to all that we believe. Forgetting the past is to remove authority. Uh, I know a man who survived Nazi concentration camps uh, when he was older and a, and a grandfather. Uh, he told his grandson that Hitler, Hitler actually won the war not in battles, but because of what he did, it caused the Jewish people to abandon their God, to forget their past. There's a lack of d discipline. Few churches require that their families instruct, memorize, and take their place in the confessional and creedal movements of Orthodox Christianity. Uh, what do we believe? When you think about the work that our church fathers have done from uh, Tertullian and uh, Irenaeus and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and so forth, that they have created a regular fide, a, a practice of faith, a belief in doctrine for our benefit. The reason they worked so hard is because they took what Jesus had said and they tried to make it understandable and something that we could stand on. And yet most evangelical churches in America today have faint knowledge of these men and of the message and of the creeds that were produced for our benefit. How do we know that what we proclaim is orthodox Christianity? The world thinks that we make this stuff up as we go along. People, our neighbors think, well, that is just your opinion. But in fact, what power comes through with that when we say, no, in fact, what I'm telling you has been believed for 2,000 years. Yeah, sure, there's been modifications to it. There have been things that have been adapted and, and, and felt out. But the fact is that we stand largely in the stream of belief that has been around since the days of the apostles. And certainly that beliefs have been formalized and put in such a way that we know exactly what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. You do not have the ability to redefine them. You cannot say, well, I believe in Christ, but I don't like this part. I don't want to live this style. I don't want to be this kind of person. 
when we get into these ethical and value wars with others, uh, we try to speak the truth in love, but we do not have the ability denominationally or individually to redefine what it means to be a believer. It has been set, it is understood. And we know this through those confessions, through the Westminster Confession, through the Apostolic Creed, through the Nicene Creed. We've had all the work done for us. Why are we trying to reinvent the wheel? Why do we ignore it? And yet we do. So with all this going on, we have to ask ourselves, is the greatest enemy not outside of the church, but actually inside the church? Have we let so much of the world encompass us and to infiltrate us, to change us, that we no longer have something that is worth noting? Because in our effort to be like everyone else, we lose our distinctiveness. Well, how should we respond as a church? First of all, recognize that the modern church or excuse me, the modern world seeks to change the church. It seeks to redefine it. Uh, I, as a pastor, I'm dealing so many times with men and some women that are struggling with issues like pornography and stuff. 66% of the business on the internet is dealing with pornography, and yet it infiltrates us in this body as much as it does anyone in the world. We allow things like no-fault divorce, and we do not stand for marriage, and yet we want to have a voice in which we define what marriage is, and yet we're not willing to live it out in our everyday life. If I have one more person tell me that God is a God of happiness, (laughs) you know, well, God wants me to be happy, therefore I'm going to leave my wife and my children, and I'm going to pursue this happy moment. Uh, I got news for you. You don't have that option. That's not what God says. God values marriage. The bride of God is the church, and he uses that imagery over and over, as many of us know, and we don't take our stand on these issues, and we thus lose our testimony. History as authority needs to be regained as well. As I just said, we need to understand who we are as a people and where we come from. Uh, I'm no longer a foster. As much as I identify with my grandparents' Uh, I'm a new creature in Christ. I have a new family in Christ. And it gives me new lifestyle, new ethics, new beliefs. And I have to adopt them. I'm not free to pick and choose which of this and which of that that I want to inculcate into my life. It is what it is. The church needs to have elaborate confessions. Uh, You know, the early church, you weren't even allowed to be a member of the church without a long and prolonged understanding of baptismal formulas before you gained admission. People had to know what they believed because they were coming out of pagan backgrounds and there wasn't any assumed understanding of Christianity. Um, The Apostles' Creed, as I've mentioned already, does such a great job in telling us what we believe. Uh, I I put out a section of the Westminster Confession, just chapter 15. I just picked that randomly because it tells us so explicitly uh, some of the answers to the questions I get asked as a pastor routinely, such as, how do I deal with sin? And if I look at this, it says, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Uh, Point six, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, uh, upon which and forsaking of those sins, he finds mercy so that he does not scandalize his Christian brother or the holy church, the church of Christ. In other words, my sins, the way that I act individually, really impact all of you. When I walk in here and we're a church and we're a body of Jesus Christ, 
Everything that we do impacts us, is either uplifts our testimony as a group or brings it down as a group. And we need to have consciousness about that. And yet as we confess to sin, as it says here, by private or public confession and sorrow for that sin, we declare repentance to those that we've offended. And then once that is done, we are reconciled to that individual or to the church, and we are to receive him in love. And so often people are saying, well, what do I do with this? And if we understood these great confessions, we would just answer so many of our questions. So specifically, what reasons in all this, I've sounded somewhat pessimistic this morning up to this point, but what reasons do we have for hope? Well, I think there are many. In this election year, we think, well, maybe the best thing we can do with all these storm clouds on the horizon is just circle the wagons. Just let's become our own little Christian enclaves like the Essenes in Jesus' day, uh, perhaps like Calvin in Geneva, and we just will just kind of let us believe what we believe and, pri- and practice what we want to practice in private, and you do your thing and we'll do our thing. And I would contend that that's not the gospel message. Uh, what we see throughout scripture is in fact that a great reason for hope is that Christianity has done well when influencing secular government. Uh, just, let's just take a, a look at some of this in a survey fashion. First of all, we look at Joseph in the book of Genesis. That whole story of narrative of Genesis ends with this story. It's powerful. Joseph, who is hated by his brothers, literally, uh, they, they would love to kill him, but instead they sell him into slavery. He's betrayed by his master in Egypt. Uh, He's put into prison and spends much of his young adult malehood uh, languishing in a prison cell. But God has a plan and eventually raises Joseph up, as some of you may know this story, and Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. What What a position of influence. Think about that in our own culture today. Uh, God's people need to be in those kind of positions. Through that, Joseph was not only able to save through the wisdom of God his entire nation, even those pagans, but also his own people. Think of the book of Daniel. We have Daniel who, of anybody, should have been discouraged. It should have been him seeing his beloved nation conquered by the Babylonians and then thus exiled and carried off to the great city. (coughs) Daniel and his young men who were to be groomed by the Babylonians to take their rightful place in their societal structure. We're told now you're gonna start eating these foods and you're gonna start believing these tenets and you're gonna start worshiping these gods. And Daniel said, no, I am not. And his companions agreed with him. And despite all the pressures put upon them, they decided they had less to fear from their surrounding culture than the surrounding culture had to fear from them. And they took a stand for Jehovah God. And what did they end up doing? They transformed their society. By the end of the book of Daniel, this old man has become sort of the grand vizier of Babylon. He is the most revered and wisest of all the holy men. Uh, we look at the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah finds himself in a tremendous position. He also is an exile, just like Daniel. But under the Persian rule, he has been given the authority to be the cupbearer for the king, a position of great influence, as you may recognize. And he uses that. Instead of just saying, I'm going to practice my Christianity quietly and silently, he uses his beliefs to help get uh, benefits for his people. And through that, Israel is able to return to the land and start reconstructing the temple for their God. We look at the book of Esther. 
She didn't plan on being that queen of Persia that she became, but God sovereignly chose her as he is choosing others today and putting her in a position of authority where as a woman dedicated to God, taking the risk, that step of faith for the Lord, puts her own life on the line so that she might rescue God's people with a well-placed word. We look at John the Baptist, Luke, when he begins to preach, he is the most popular preacher of his day. What a powerful pulpit that he manned. And even the kings listened to him. Herod, who had entered into an incestuous relationship with his brother's wife, so feared John's message in John the man that eventually, even though he beheads him, that message ultimately transformed even his kingdom. The Apostle Paul in Acts 24 through 26 is constantly given the opportunity to proclaim his message between various governors and rulers, Felix and so forth. His hope was to proclaim that message even in Rome. We read in these verses, Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that such short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Again and again and again, God's people are used to influence their society and their culture. Psalm 119.46 says, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. God has given us that assurance and that authority. Another reason for hope is that Christianity has done well in influencing uh, secular governments throughout history, not just in scripture, but even in our modern age and since the time of Christ. And uh, there's a lot of places I could go here, but I just choose a few. 374 AD, the Christians are successful in ending abortions in the empire of Rome. In 404 AD, Christians rallied to stop gladiators from being put to death at the end of their matches in the arena. Christianity has long been a major proponent in establishing property rights and voting rights and women's rights. In 1829, Christians insist on the ceasing uh, in India of people lighting themselves on fire with immolation. 1912, they push for the end of the Chinese nobility, binding the feet of their women and crippling them for life. Often in this country, we hear by many that, well, it's Christians who are responsible for slavery. Uh, as a bald-faced lie. Uh, there certainly were some people who filled pulpits who didn't understand their God nor their word. But over two-thirds of American clergy in the 1850s were advocating for abolition and the end of the African slave trade. In the 1960s, we see the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. leading other Christian men and women in an effort to end racism in this country. Christians can do more. Uh, today, we see the Family Research Council filling in many of those roles, the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom uh, people, and so forth. We have to be pushing our society for betterment. It is not a time for a retreat. As pastors, we need to speak to today's issues. The world needs to hear from God about issues like same-sex marriage, abortion, and race. Maybe one of the most, biggest issues I personally think that is hitting us, and most people miss, is school choice. Oh, too, too many, we as evangelicals, let our children be taught daily and informed by people like teachers and coaches and so forth. And we spend less and less time with our kids. And so when we think about where we're going to have our kids educated, we want to be evangelistic. We want to get them in the right places to hear from the right people. 
public school, private school, home school, we have to take the chance to do the best we can by them, to embrace them, to equip them and prepare them for the challenges that are going to face them. We can't just blindly hand them over to other people and say, here, educate my children and I will have all hope that they will turn out and believe like I need them to believe, like Christ has created them to believe. Oh, man. Fourthly, we have specific reasons for hope. First of all, our Lord God still rules. He's ruling. I've got a bunch of verses on this, but I'm not going to take the time to read them. Secondly, Jesus Christ continues to build his church. And one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, in John chapter 6, Jesus has just told the masses that he's not here just to feed them. He's not here just to heal them, but that he has come to die for them. That this great mission of his is going to ultimately end in his death. That he's going to be the sacrifice for their sins. And suddenly, when the free bread line is over, the people desert him. It says the masses leave. And all of a sudden, we see in this picture in John 6, Jesus walking down a road. And he turns and looks, and his apostles are still following him. And he actually questions them. He says, you're still here? You're still with me? And Peter, always the bold, comes out and says, Lord, where else would we hear the words of truth? And Jesus says upon this statement, I will build my church. This is the only place to be. As much as people like to say, well, we don't need church. I, I, don't, I, I want to be somewhere else. We're, we're kind of a Christian halfway house in American culture. We have those that believe but do not belong in church. They don't really claim ownership or membership anywhere. And then we have those who are belonging but actually don't believe. It's a, it's a curious mix. And yet they're abandoning the church because they somehow see it as not hip, not with it, not... Uh, something that's relevant to their everyday life. And yet nowhere else in scripture is there anything but the church. This is the place that God has ordained for social transformation, for individual conversion, for the power and grace of the gospel. Kingdom of God will not shrink, but it will grow. And sometimes we get a little lost in our perspective here because we see, as I said, so many churches shrinking. But do you know that if 4,000 churches are closing every year, 3,500 churches are being planted every year in this country. That if you look around the world, you see God doing some absolutely amazing things. I mentioned some Western civilization uh, expansions in history, like the First Great Awakening, Second Great, but right now, there's awakenings happening that dwarf anything that we've seen in this country historically. In Henan, in China, uh, probably the fastest growing Christian community in the world. It's been estimated there are more Christians in Henan than there are Communist Party members. In the global south, God is doing great things in Africa, in South America. We have to get our focus off ourselves and start looking elsewhere, but we have to be committed to working right here. Sometimes we miss Acts 1-8 when it's really saying, because we're so you know, committed to missions, and well, we should be. But the first step, it says, is we're going to take that gospel to Jerusalem, Iowa City, Coralville, North Liberty, West Branch, University of Iowa, City High, Regina High, you know, West High. We've got to do that right here. And until we get that job going, we really have no business going elsewhere. And yet we miss it. It's so much easier to bring people who are going thousands of miles away than for me to stand up in my own home and say, in my own neighborhood and say, I'm going to be a missionary for Christ right here. We can't miss that. God's moral law is still in operation. 
as much as people fight against it, and as much as they want freedom to live their own lives, it's still there is something that is a hole in their soul, and they need conviction, they need a message of hope from us. There's continuing importance and efficacy of bold proclamation of the word of God. Paul went to Athens to Mars Hill, and in the midst of all those great men of learning and thinking, Paul stood up and he preached a message from that same small, itinerant, rural Galilean that we started our story with. I do not believe personally that God is finished with this country, the United States. I'm not sounding a note of American triumphalism, but I am saying there's some amazing things about us. We're still the largest source of missionaries and online literature on the gospel in the world today. We still have the largest bodies of conservative theological scholarship. We're still pioneers and example of government by the people, for the people. We're still defenders of small nations. We're willing to put our military might against international thugs. We're protectors of the world's commerce. Just look at the job we're doing against piracy. We produce 22% of the world's wealth with only 4% of the world's population. And through that, Christians acting in this nation are using that wealth to do some amazing thing for God. We're the largest producer of the world's food, of the world's medicine. We have the largest number of Nobel Peace Prize winners. 29% of the U.S. identifies as evangelical, 21% as Roman Catholic. We're not quite Sodom and Gomorrah yet. There are still more than 10 righteous here. This is no time to be circling the wagons. This is the time for God's faithful people to be energized. We've got to look at 2016 as maybe a closing time period where this country understands what the gospel message is really all about. Sure, the church has made mistakes. Christianity has done some absolutely horrid things in the name of Christ. But that is not who we are as a people. And in such uh, an understanding, we should not shirk back from our responsibilities, but instead boldly proclaim what we know to be the truth. I'm going to end this morning with this story of uh, the Emperor Julian. Under Constantine, his half-brother, the Roman Empire switched from persecuting Christians to legalizing Christianity from saying that this is something that we're going to try to exterminate to saying, no, in fact, we're all going to identify as believers. And Jillian's uh, growing up, he was raised by Christian parents. He was taught the word of God as a child. But somewhere in there, uh, in his later life, I mean, his junior high, as we would call it, years, he was begun to be taught by people who believed in the Roman way of life, the Roman empire, the Roman gods. And Jillian decided that he was going to be the emperor that brought Rome back to where it was now and reject Christianity. He's called Julian the Apostate historically because he was raised as a believer, but he rejected his faith in an effort to bring back what he thought was the glory of Rome. But through God's sovereignty and power and through the strength of God's church, that never happened. And with his dying breath, it is recorded as him saying, you have conquered Galilean, and indeed he has. He's giving us that hope. It's my prayer that as the body of Christ, we would have that hope as we go about how we live. The Christian faith is alive, it's vital, it's powerful, because our God is alive and powerful, and we need to emulate him as we move about in our society. There's never a word in scripture about us retiring. With our last breath, with our last hope, we have to be willing to commit to God. Al Mohler, 
says that in his mind, Al Mohler is the president of Southern Seminary, that people in the Christian world are too easily talking about persecution, and this is on the horizon, and this is one of those storm clouds. But he, he identifies there are really three concentric circles you need to understand. The first one is one of repression. As believers, we're seeing laws passed and, and just societal pressures put on us that repress our expression of our beliefs and our faith. The second circle is marginalization. It may really cost us something to identify as a Christian. At that phase, we're losing jobs. We're no longer employable. We no longer have certain privileges that we used to enjoy uh, legally. And only that core level is when the sword comes and persecution actually hits. And in Dr. Muller's view, we're moving from circle one to circle two. But instead of just hiding with that thought, this is time more than ever to push back out, to make the voice of Christ be heard, no matter what it costs us, no matter what the price may be. Uh, we're not called to celebrate the American way of life. We're called to take the gospel, that mission, to the world, no matter what it costs us. That's our reason for hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word and its power and its strength. I do pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to transform our society, our culture, that we would not uh, lack courage. We would not uh, miss opportunities to transform the neighbors that we live by, the people that we work with, our own family members. Father, may we regain an understanding of who we are historically, uh, dogmatically, and may we proclaim that message loudly and clearly. Father, renew in us the zeal that your church has always experienced and always had when it gets close to you. Help us put aside those things that encumber us this year, and may we be alive to you. Father, thank you for the hope that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.